American stories and we love to tell stories about everything including our country and we brought you an hour on Benjamin Franklin thanks to Walter Isaacson an hour on Alexander Hamilton thanks to Ron Chernow the Wright brothers thanks to David McCullough and you're going to hear it from some of the best minds the straightest minds the American story enough people don't know about it American history isn't taught anymore in too many of our schools it's a tragedy but there are great resources for you now thanks to digital technology And so if you can't find it in the schools, you can find it on your computers. And joining us now is Jeffrey Rosen, and he's a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, but he is also the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, a contributing editor of The Atlantic, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's a busy guy, and thanks for carving out some time to talk to us, Jeffrey. Wonderful to be here. You bet. And Jeffrey, before we start, I always like to start all of what we do here on the show. And is what did what did you think about when you were young that brought you to where you are now? A little bit about your mother and father, the circumstances of your birth, where you grew up, and how you got where you are right now. Wow. Well, I grew up in New York City, and I uh, went to um, all sorts of great schools, Harvard, Oxford, Yale, you know, sounds so fancy, but I was so lucky because they just kindled in me this great intellectual excitement. And I discovered in law school that my passion was the Constitution, and in particular, bringing people of different perspectives together to discuss the Constitution. So as you said, I just have had a great run as a law professor teaching constitutional law at GW Law School, as a legal journalist for all these great publications, writing about the Supreme Court. But about three years ago, I got the dream job of my life when I was uh, uh, asked to be the head of this beautiful institution, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And this is a place that was created by Congress during the bicentennial of the Constitution with an inspiring mission to engage in nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. And this is the mission of my life, is, is in these polarized times, bringing together people of different perspectives, just as you're doing on this great show to discuss this great document of human freedom, which binds us. So I've been here for three years. I uh, have been so privileged to be part of a great team that has built up this spectacular online digital education platform. You mentioned the fact that now we can find so much education online, and I've got to just start by pitching to your listeners the incredible interactive constitution that the Constitution Center launched a year ago. It's gotten 9 million hits since it launched. Uh, Listeners can find it in the App Store at Interactive Constitution or online at constitutioncenter.org and co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, the leading liberal and conservative lawyers groups in America. This amazing online research allows you to click on any part of the Constitution, say the Second Amendment or the Foreign Emoluments Clause or all the stuff that's in the news, and see the top liberal and conservative scholars with a thousand words about what they agree the clause means and then separate statements about what they disagree. And it's just thrilling to see how much agreement there, there really is, but also the areas of disagreement. And that model of bringing liberals and conservatives together to talk about the Constitution on every media platform around the country, in Philadelphia, on videos, on our We the People podcast every week, 
or what we're doing here at the center is hugely meaningful and important in these polarized times, and I am just so privileged to be doing it. And that's constitutioncenter.org. But if you have a family trip in store in the next month's spring break, go to Philadelphia and visit this great institution and visit Assembly Hall. Go to see the Liberty Bell. Um, Go to see where these remarkable men in the 18th century did something so dazzling and unique that other countries around the world have just been trying to copy us since. And many are succeeding. And my goodness, Jeffrey, as you know, so many still aren't. But let's talk about this Constitution. And let's talk about, you know, most, most people, what they do know about the Constitution is the Bill of Rights. But what they don't know is Article 1, 2, and 3 particularly. Talk about those three articles before we dig into your really superb Wall Street Journal piece on Article 2. But let's talk about the three branches of government and, and give people a little background as to how that happened and why. Yes, it's hugely important to start with the structural constitution, uh, both because there's a real knowledge deficit here. Uh, a recent Annenberg survey suggests that only a third of Americans can name all three branches of government. Uh, a third can't name a single one. But also because, as you said, the, the, the Bill of Rights wasn't what the framers were thinking about when they gathered in Independence Hall across from the Constitution Center in, in, in 1787. They were trying to create a structural constitution that would create a government energetic enough to attend to common purposes, like being able to wage war and then raise revenue, but constrained enough so that it wouldn't threaten liberty the way the king had. So they created a Congress with, with enumerated powers. Uh, they created a presidency in Article Two with, with also a limited powers and a judiciary. Interestingly, the framers thought that Congress, the legislature, would be the most dangerous branch because it had uh, the most powers. Uh, the presidency was supposed to be quite limited. Uh, he had a few uh, powers, like the ability to uh, veto laws, to take care that the laws were faithfully executed, to nominate uh, ambassadors and judges, to be commander-in-chief of the armed forces. But Congress had control over the purse. It had the power to declare war. It could deny appropriations uh, to anything that it wanted to thwart the president on. And, 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 and therefore, uh, when it came to tyranny, it really was legislative tyranny that the framers were concerned about. That changed over the centuries, and we can talk about that evolution if you like, but it's, it's good just to begin by looking at the Constitution, see the nine articles of Article One, which with all these different powers uh, assigned to Congress, and only uh, four separate sections for the president, um, it's a much more constrained office. You bet, and it's so important to know what problems the founders were trying to solve, because in the end, the Constitution was a document in which people were trying to solve problems uh, that, that had never been, I think, Jeffrey, ever solved before in this way. We're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to dig into Article 2. We're also going to talk a little bit about why the Bill of Rights existed. Uh, People think this is a democracy, but in the end, it's really anti-democratic and illiberal in very very important ways because the majority cannot take away our right to free speech. The majority cannot take away those fundamental rights. They're God-given, the the, the founders thought, and not government-granted. So an interesting and a lot of dynamic tensions in this beautiful document. No better person to talk to about it. Jeffrey Rosen... More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And you can go to constitutioncenter.org. And my goodness, their interactive constitution, it's, it's simply the best teaching tool on the Constitution ever assembled. And it's straight up the middle. You get the best from the right, the best from the left, and you even got to find out what they, agree, what they agree on. Jeffrey, what was fascinating to me when I went to UVA Law School was that America, for the most part, and this happens across almost every subject, we get to see what the judges disagree on, but we never find out what they agree on. And there are lots of decisions that are 9-0, 9-0, and those never, never get reported, Jeffrey. You're absolutely right, and that's the majority of decisions. Something like 80% of the decisions are unanimous. You know, a small percentage are five to four, and it's important, especially because this is such a polarized time, to remember how much the justices agree on and how much scholars agree on. And it really was thrilling to commission the top liberal and conservative scholars. Their homework was to write about all 80 clauses of the Constitution and to see how quickly they were able to come to consensus about what the settled law and history was on the most contested clauses of our time, including the, the Second Amendment and the Foreign Emoluments Clause. So really, although uh, much divides us, we have important uh, ideas and ideals that unite us, and those are embodied in the beautiful U.S. Constitution. No doubt about it. Let's talk a little bit about the problems we were trying to solve as it relates to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, talk about that, and then also talk about this state tug, because the states were worried about power, too, and they were going to give up or yield too much to a central government. And they were worried, my goodness, we've just gotten away from this king. We're worried about our sovereignty. So the states were worried about sovereignty, but yet we were worried about financing a military and being able to transact commerce between state lines. I mean, everybody had their own currency. What a mess. So talk about the problems these guys were all trying to solve in that room in Philadelphia. Well, you put it very well. They were concerned about uh, funding the Confederate war debts, about raising money to achieve uh, common uh, purposes, including the common defense. They were concerned about debtors' rebellions, Shays' rebellion. They feared that the property classes were being assaulted by these mobs. Uh, and that the government was powerless to respond, and therefore they wanted to create a federal government energetic enough to act, unlike the Articles of Confederation, where you needed unanimous consent of all the uh, sovereign states to do anything, which, which made common action possible, and yet constrained enough not to threaten individual liberty and also to maintain some degree of state autonomy. Uh, there were many really important philosophical questions. One was, who should be sovereign, the people of the United States or the people of each individual state? And James Wilson from Pennsylvania insisted the people of the United States were sovereign, and therefore secession from the Union, once it was created, would be unconstitutional. Lincoln relied on those arguments. By contrast, others insisted individual states were sovereign and could uh, secede. And the other place that this debate about the scope of federal and state power came up was about whether or not to have a Bill of Rights. And James Madison initially said, 
we don't need a Bill of Rights because it's unnecessary or dangerous. Unnecessary because the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights, because Congress has constrained powers. It has no authority to abridge freedom of speech or other retained natural rights that, as you so well put it, the framers believed came from God or nature and not from government. And Madison also thought a Bill of Rights would be dangerous because if you wrote down certain rights, people might wrongly assume that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. And because of these natural rights... Uh, were not created by government, it would be wrong to assume that they could be uh, enumerated on a short list. Um, but anti-federalists like uh, George Mason of Virginia, who wrote the Great Virginia Declaration of Rights, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, I've now le- learned to pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering, if you want <laughs> yeah. to be pedantic, um, they said they refused to sign the Constitution because it had no Bill of Rights. We have this incredible space at the Constitution Center called Signers Hall with life-size statues of all the framers. And in the back of the room are the three anti-federalists, Gary Mason and, and, and Randolph of Virginia, who didn't sign the Constitution because it had no Bill of Rights. So in the face of this opposition, James Madison changed his mind, and he was a pragmatic politician. He favored compromise, and he listened to the cry of those states who, who, condition, who, who said when they ratified that they, they wanted a Bill of Rights. And then Madison cut and pasted among the Bill of Rights uh, that existed in the revolutionary-era state constitutions. And as if the interactive Constitution debates between the scholars isn't enough, there's more. I feel like a Ginsu Nice at this point. <laughs> you can also, on this incredible app, click on any part of the Bill of Rights and see its antecedents in the revolutionary-era state constitutions. So you can see how Madison drew on George Mason's First Amendment free speech protections or religious liberty provisions when he drafted the language of our First Amendment. And Madison drafted the Bill of Rights. It originally had not ten amendments, but twelve. Uh, George Washington sent out uh, twelve amendments for ratification. At the Constitution Center, you can see one of the twelve original copies of the Bill of Rights, which has twelve amendments. The first two were not ratified. Uh, So our First Amendment was their third. And free speech, it wasn't at the top of their list. Their First Amendment actually said there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be something like 4,000 Congress people today, so it's <laughs> right. good that it didn't. But it was just a coincidence that the free speech amendment passed first, and that resulted in the beautiful Bill of Rights that we have today. Yep. And let's talk about one last thing, and then the final segment we'll dig into your piece on executive power and a history of executive power as we go to Donald Trump and we're looking at Barack Obama and Bush, you take us way back. And I, I love what you did there, providing a context for people to uh, understand what's happening and interpret it in the press. But I want to talk about property rights. We were just doing, we spent some time with Walter Isaacson. And what was remarkable about the founders, they understood that there was physical property and the Constitution protected property. But this idea of intellectual property and the patent, this is a stunning, uh, thoughtful way of thinking about the world in the 18th century, Jeffrey. It really is. And what's so striking is how much Jeffersonian thought influenced the copyright clause. Jefferson is incredibly opposed to monopolies of any kind. He believes that they're engines of tyranny that threaten farmers and the producing classes. But he makes an exception for limited monopolies for intellectual property because it's helpful to uh, encourage creative processes. And that's why uh, copyrights are authorized for limited periods, um, just enough to give people incentives to write and create, but not so much that they can uh, 
prevent the dissemination and sharing of ideas. Jefferson has this beautiful metaphor about someone who lights a candle from my taper, you know, doesn't diminish mine, but uh, increases the flame for, for all. It's more eloquent. But um, that's why the framers had the copyright clause. It's an exception to the general anti-monopoly rule. And Jefferson actually introduces a failed constitutional amendment that would have banned Congress from setting up any other monopolies or corporations with exclusive privileges, that fails. But that anti-monopoly tradition runs throughout American history, from Jefferson to Jackson to my hero, Louis Brandeis, uh, who have just written a new book about, to Woodrow Wilson, to uh, FDR. And we're hearing some of it today on both the left and the right. You know, we did an hour on, on, on Jerry Wexler, the uh, producer of Atlantic Records and one of the co-founders. And we also spent about eight of those minutes on the story of a song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which Carol King wrote. <laughs> But Jerry Wexler had the audacity and the intellect to know that Aretha Franklin needs to be covering that song, that Carole King may not be the best singer. And he, t- he noted briefly that the genius of this thing called the property right of a song, and that this is what makes the arts community so rich in this country, that we can transact business around and enter into the free markets and private enterprise with this ownership and the Carol King derived tremendous royalties from Aretha Franklin's performance of that song. And Aretha launched her career and got her royalties or performance royalties thanks to that song. And so that foresight back then led to the music we listen to today, Jeffrey. Phenomenal. Absolutely beautiful. and such a great example. You bet. When we come back, we'll get to the, the article that prompted this conversation, and that is Jeffrey's beautiful piece in the Wall Street Journal, which, as always, is nonpartisan and just takes us down a walk down the road of executive power and the struggles about power between the branches of government. And again, we're talking about Article 1, which is the legislative branch, Article 2, the executive branch, and Article 3, the judiciary. And when we come back... We'll get to that with Jeffrey Rosen. And by the way, again, it's the con- it's constitutioncenter.org, constitutioncenter.org. And folks, this is a seminal family trip. You know, Washington, D.C. and Philly are very close. So if you're to go to D.C. for two or three days, get on that Amtrak train, get up to Philadelphia, take two more days, or heck, just go to Philly because I think they got better food. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More with Jeffrey Rosen after these messages. Our American Stories, and joining us, Jeffrey Rosen. And we've been talking about his article, and now we're about to dig into it from the Wall Street Journal. And this was from a couple of weeks back, but we don't do the news here, folks, as you know. It's storytelling, and every once in a while, we just talk to really smart people. And Jeffrey's one of the smartest, but he's not just smart, he's fair. And we like to do that, too. There's no screaming, there's no yelling here. 
Uh, there's a lot of other places you can get that, folks. And I know that's why you're tuning in. And Jeffrey, the title was The Overinflated Presidency, and the subtitle was Donald Trump Will Inherit an Executive Branch Whose Powers Have Ballooned Far Beyond Their Constitutional Bounds. And I love the way you provide historical context for this. What led you to this piece, and where do we start? Well, the editors of the Wall Street Journal asked me to write a piece about the history of executive power and how it's evolved over time. A wonderful assignment, and... Uh, as it happened, I am in the middle of writing a biography of an underappreciated but very constitutionally minded president, William Howard Taft. So I jumped at the chance to start with the debate between Taft and Roosevelt in 1912 about the powers of the presidency, which really encapsulates, for me, the point at which the framers' vision of a constrained president who is far less dangerous than the legislature morphed into our modern version of the imperial presidency. And just very briefly, you have the two positions uh, encapsulated between Taft and Roosevelt, the two former allies who became uh, rivals in 1912. Taft takes the traditional position, which had been embraced by 19th century presidents, that the president can only do what the Constitution explicitly allows. So that vision was embodied by people like uh, Abraham Lincoln, who as a congressman, a Whig congressman, um, in the 1850s, demanded that President James Knox Polk identify the precise spot that Mexican troops were said to have shed blood on U.S. soil because Lincoln thought, without proving that, uh, Polk had no authority to dispatch troops in the Mexican War on his own. And for that, Lincoln became known as Spotty Lincoln. That's how legalistic he was. <laughs> but uh, Theodore Roosevelt, in 1912, kind of goes off the populist deep end and insists that the president can do anything that the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid. It's the opposite of the Taft-constrained vision. Uh, Roosevelt calls it the stewardship theory. He delivers this famous uh, new nationalism speech in Kansas in 1910, where he says the new nationalism regards the executive power as the steward of the public welfare. And later he says the executive officer is a steward of the people. So, um, this Rooseveltian vision basically triumphs over the Taft vision. And although a few uh, presidents like uh, Coolidge uh, took the constrained view, every president, Republican, Democratic, since Franklin Roosevelt, has taken Theodore Roosevelt's uh, stewardship view that the president can do anything the Constitution doesn't explicitly allow. And both liberals and conservatives acquiesced in this vast expansion of executive power, in ways that led critics of both George W. Bush and Barack Obama to accuse both of those presidents of having created uh, an imperial presidency, to use Arthur Schlesinger's uh, phrase from the 1960s, and to enact by executive order policies that Congress had refused to enact by statute. So both Bush and Obama are criticized for asking Congress for action, like immigration uh, reform in Obama's case, or uh, uh, NSA, uh, terrorism-related actions in Bush's case, Congress refuses, and the president does it anyway by executive order. Now, all of a sudden, progressives are joining conservatives and libertarians in fearing for the excesses of the unconstrained presidency. There's a renewed interest in Madisonian limits on executive power. So perhaps uh, William Howard Taft will have his day at last. Well, what I always found interesting is when Bush was telling Congress to hurry up or he'd have to act without them, 
The Democrats went crazy. And then when Obama said, look, if you don't get to this Congress, you pesky uh, legislative branch, I'll do something about it. The conservatives went crazy. And, of course, the American people didn't like any of it because that's their choice through the people's branch. It's really true. Both sides uh, have uh, been opportunistic in this regard. And there's a sort of bipartisan moment here where uh, liberal conservative and libertarian critics of our new president, President Trump, are concerned that the the presidency has become too populist. They, they they worry about the president communing directly with the people through tweets in a way that the framers certainly would not have anticipated. James Madison said explicitly the last thing that elected representatives in Congress and the presidency are supposed to do is communicate directly with the people. They had, as you said in your great intro, a filtered view of democracy, where rather than direct populist influence, the elected officials are supposed to uh, represent the people through their own wisdom uh, rather than through direct instructions. So uh, there is a, a renewed interest in, in Madisonian constraints, and we'll see, uh, we'll see where they go. We will. And, and one other thing, and, and it's not on the subject of the, of the piece that you wrote, but I've, I've always wondered about the administrative state. That is what I call the soft state. And that is, you know, the, the EPA, the FDA, and it, it, the authority that Congress is in some ways just tossed over to them for who knows what reasons, in the same way that often Congress will punt to the Supreme Court. I mean, sometimes it's not that the court wants these authorities. It's that the legislative branch doesn't, doesn't want to face the heat on a tough decision. Talk about how the branches sometimes use each other. Jeffrey, and, and, and kick the can down the road or punt on things, thus giving another branch possibly more power than it was ever designed to have. There's no question about it. That's very well put. We had a superb discussion about the constitutionality of the administrative state here at the Constitution Center a few weeks ago, co-sponsored by the Federal Judicial Center, which is the continuing education group for federal judges, and a wonderful bipartisan group of appellate and district court federal judges came to the center. We had two public programs, which listeners can find online at constitutioncenter.org. But the basic question was, is the administrative state unconstitutional? And that was a question that was last live during the New Deal period when the Supreme Court struck down the centerpiece of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, National Industrial Recovery Act uh, unanimously on the grounds that it centralized power and violated the doctrines that said that the president that said that Congress cannot uh, delegate away its legislative lawmaking authority to the presidency. But ever since the New Deal and ever since the Supreme Court switched its position in 1937 and began to uphold the administrative state, uh, it's been mostly academics who've really been challenging its constitutionality. The current, the, the current Supreme Court, if the balance maintains the same as it was uh, under the late Justice Scalia, may not have the appetite to really dig into this question uh, uh, wholeheartedly, but if President Trump were to get another Supreme Court seat, we could see serious questions on the part of the Supreme Court about whether Congress has delegated too much of its lawmaking authority to the presidency and whether agencies from the EPA to the Federal Reserve to the Federal Communications Commission might in fact be unconstitutional. Well, I think what was stunning to so many of us when we got to law school and we studied the administrative state was that in the end there was almost taxing power in these agencies in the end because they were able through their regulations to increase costs and yet the people didn't get to speak on behalf and on, on, on their own behalf and and the taxing power resides in article one moreover you don't get the same due process when you're in front of an administrative judge in the irs 
that you do in the criminal courts. In the criminal courts, you're, you have the presumption of innocence. With the IRS, you're sort of presumed guilty. I mean, there are appeals, but I don't know how many Americans listening right now have heard from their accountant, look, yeah, and you may be right here, but I think you should just pay because, you know, just get it over with. And so that feeling of American citizens not being able to respond to this large apparatus far away from them, I think is something that I think libertarians share with some conservatives and some progressives. I think it's just a fascinating union of, of, of allies and interests in some of these discussions. It really is. And lower, lower courts are beginning to revive these questions. There was a fascinating decision recently holding that administrative law judges of the Securities and Exchange Commissions may violate due process and lacking all of the procedural protections of the Bill of Rights may be unconstitutional. So I think we're seeing, as you said, renewed interest in reexamining these first principles and the debate that results will be absolutely fascinating. Jeffrey Rosen and, of course, the National Constitution Center. It's a must-see. And get to constitutioncenter.org if you can't get to Philly. Jeffrey, we'd love to have you on a lot more, and we'd love to take some of your content and share it with our audience. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for all you're doing to educate Americans. It was a real pleasure. I look forward to the next time. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of our Constitution. There is no greater story. That's why people are running to see Hamilton. There's stuff there they didn't know. And the people behind the story, even more interesting. More after these messages. This is our American stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here about music, history, sports, business. All the stuff you've come to love. We don't do politics, but we do step into issues, and we do sometimes talk about public policy, but when it affects you, when it affects the taxpayer. Not because there's something to yell about, but because there's something interesting going on that does or could soon affect your life, your pocketbook. Today, we're talking about some interesting developments in right-to-work policies with David Frum, the Illinois State Director of Americans for Prosperity. David wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, Right to work zones in deep blue Illinois, question mark. And we're curious about what that means. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Lee, for having me. David, before we start, what does right to work mean? Boil it down if you can in a minute. Sure. Well, right to work uh, laws basically lift the requirement that forces workers to join and uh, pay a union as a condition of employment. So in right to work states, if an employee wishes to work in a, in a shop whose employees are unionized but does not want to join the union or pay the union dues and fees, a right-to-work law allows them to, to refuse to join. So uh, it's, a, it's really a freedom issue. We can have to consider it. It's like employee freedom. So essentially it's employee freedom, and right-to-work means really the right to work without it being forced to join a union. Yeah, right. Uh, and you know, right-to-work states uh, have shown, uh, you know, Greater economic growth. Um, you know, there's a lot of great reasons why more and more states are moving towards right to work. But um, it is it really you know at, at its core, it's a freedom issue. It's that people can choose whether or not they want to be in a union and pay dues to that union. You know, one of the things we love doing here is following the United Van Lines uh, surveys because they're <laughs> tracking where people are moving to and from. That's fascinating when people vote with their feet because that's a far more difficult vote than simply going to a voting booth. If you've upped your business and left a state, or if you've upped and left a state, um, that's a 
that's something deep, that's something profound, and we're learning that people are leaving a lot of blue states for red states, and a lot of those red states have right-to-work laws. Talk about that, David. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, uh, right-to-work states have outperformed forced unionism states uh, in a lot of economic indicators. Uh, they usually have lower unemployment, more job growth, more income growth, more population growth. Um, so in the current, I believe there's 27 right-to-work states right now, uh, between 2001 and 2011, you know, right-to-work states added 1.7 million jobs, while forced unionism states lost over 2 million jobs. So in the last decade, part, you know, part of this decade, that's a, that's a pretty big difference, plus 1.7 million jobs versus a loss of 2 million jobs. And, you know, I, I, I live in Illinois, and uh, we're, we're absolutely a forced unionism state, and um, we've been number one or two, depending on the year, on that was competing with New Jersey on that list for the United Van Lines of out migration because yep. people do vote with their feet. When when you can't afford to live in a state, you can't afford to uh, make you know if employers can't afford to locate plants and other things in the state, then people leave to go find jobs and better lives. Yeah, Mercedes of North America in Montville, New Jersey. I grew up fairly close to there, David. Uh, they pulled out last year, and all the politicians said. How could they have done this to us? And they said, well, we kept telling you, you're killing us. And they moved. And by the way, they're all moving to places in a lot of international companies, a lot of international automotive companies right here in Mississippi where we broadcast. We have a Toyota plant right down the road. South Carolina, my goodness, that BMW plant, I've been there. It's unbelievable. They're choosing right-to-work states to locate their capital and their human capital too, David. No, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, eight of the ten top states for the greatest overall employment growth have been right-to-work states. Uh, right-to-work states, for instance, experienced um, about 43% gain in total unemployment uh, from you know in the last two decades uh, versus only 18% uh, gain for non-right-to-work states. So, I mean, the, the data is pretty clear that you know, when you're a right-to-work state, uh, employers want to come there, and that, that's where the jobs are. You know, and, and uh, you know, I think, for instance, you know, the now president is, is elected, uh, has uh, highlighted a lot of instances and talked about, you know, manufacturing jobs. And, you know, the reason we care about the manufacturing jobs is often they're, they're good living wage jobs, uh, with a, you know, that, that really help a community and help certainly help families. And, uh, you know, right-to-work states are the ones who are attracting those jobs now. You, you know, you've seen Tennessee and Indiana and uh, certainly, yeah, down in, in the south, there's a lot of right-to-work states that are now attracting international plants even. It's so true. And, you know, that's a story that's not told enough. You know, we all we hear about all the companies going overseas and leaving America. But what about all those companies coming to America and why are they choosing the states they choose? We do some of that storytelling here on the show. Let's talk about Illinois in particular. Tell us about some of what's been going on in your state in the union space Tell us about Pam Harris and efforts to advance right to work. Her story is fascinating. Right. So, uh, I mean, Mrs. Harris you know, has a disabled son and uh, that she cares for at home, and she received some govern- government uh, funding to care for her son, like a, a lot of people do. Um, and, I mean, I think all of us could agree that, you know, having a mother care for her, uh, her disabled son is probably one of the most desirable outcomes that we could have. In, um, and so providing money, I think, makes a lot of sense. Um, but SEIU, a big union, came in and wanted to organize them and wanted them to become union members so they could divert some of that money to the union in the form of fees. And um, uh, Mrs. Harris 
objected to that um, because there is also a provision that would have required them to uh, collect a fee even from the non-union members if uh, under the collective uh, collective bargaining agreement, and um, be- because of basically certain aspects of the collective bargaining agreement would would still benefit some of the non-union members, like Mr. Harris. Mr. Harris said that's against my First Amendment rights, and um, and the Supreme Court agreed. They struck down that provision in Illinois uh, in, in the Illinois Public Labor Relations Act, and uh, and said no, you can't forcibly collect these dues from somebody who's not in the union. And that just makes sense to just about everybody who's listening. And that's just how far things can go, David. You need an actual Supreme Court to litigate what seems like common sense to nine seventh graders. And it's it's almost absurd. Let's talk about, though, the state of Illinois is still right to work. And you've got all these people fleeing. And by the way, when people flee a state, particularly the earners and the businesses, where are you going to get your revenue from? And this means going to the existing people who have stayed and asking them for more. And this becomes a very, not a virtuous cycle, it becomes a vicious cycle. What can people do? What about going down to the locality? What about the county level? Can the county say to the state legislature, hey, we want to have right to work. The heck with you. How far down, you know, what I love about America, and we talk about this a lot on the show, is this federal experiment. There's Washington, then there's the states. But inside the states, there's a battle for power, too. And there's nothing like the county and the and the city and township level. Talk about that, David. Sure. Uh, in Illinois, if a municipality or a county would like to uh, be right to work, um, they have to seek the permission permission of the General Assembly. And as it's currently constituted, they would not grant that permission. So um, the village of Lincolnshire in the north, northern suburbs of Chicago passed a law saying that they want to be right to work. And uh, immediately the number of unions filed a lawsuit and objected. And so now it's being litigated through the courts. Um, it, it will eventually get to the, the, the Seventh Circuit, which will, which will rule on it. And um, if they rule that it is okay for certain municipalities to choose to be uh, a right to work, uh, a right to work location, then they then they will be, and that I think would be a, a great blow uh, in favor of worker freedom. You know, we saw in Kentucky before they they passed right to work this past week, but as a statewide thing. But before that, the, the number of counties there had passed right to work, and their circuit court was called the Sixth Circuit. They passed a law. They, they they ruled that that those communities are allowed to pass local right to work. Call it. And so we're we're very hopeful that uh, the Seventh Circuit will agree with the Sixth Circuit and decide to pass uh, right to work on the lo- or, or allow right to work on the local level, so that communities, particularly our border communities, I and mean, we in after Missouri, which I think this week will pass right to work, or potentially next week will pass right to work. Illinois will be surrounded by right to work states. So you have communities like Quincy or Danville or Cairo, which are, which are all border communities that border right-to-work states who are becoming less and less competitive for employers. And what's to stop an employer to uh, move over the border into Kentucky or into Indiana or into Missouri or Wisconsin to uh, save a great deal of money on their, uh, on their employment and not have to deal with some of the headaches that, that a, lot of the, a lot of the organized labor uh, causes for them? It's so true, and I think also when you do deal with it on the county level, well, everybody gets to see the benefits of right to work. So one county might just start leaping ahead of the other county, and the next thing you know, from the bottom up, 
you can actually affect what happens in state legislatures by first impacting and proving dispositively that this right-to-work stuff it not only makes sense, it makes, makes money. You're exactly right, Lee. I mean, we can, you know, I, I talked about earlier about the, the state-by-state basis, you know, how you can see how the right-to-work states are growing and the communism states are not growing. But it's even more apples-to-apples when one municipality or one county is right-to-work and, and their neighboring one is not then you really can see the difference that uh, that employers see, especially when they decide to locate a business or a plant or especially manufacturing jobs. Um, you know, one of the, the leading things they're looking for is, you know, where are the right to work areas? Yep. So and- we, we feel like that that's a, that's a real opportunity. Not only not only will it be better for the workers and the citizens there, but it will also be better. It will also allow us to kind of prove a little more objectively, you know, how 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 effective it is. Yeah, nothing better than just seeing it in your neighboring county and then starting to talk to your state legislator and say, heck, what the heck's going on? Or talking to your county people and saying, hey, we want that too. The next thing you know, a bunch of counties are right to work. The next thing you know, you flip the state. David Frum, Illinois State Director of Americans for Prosperity, right to work all across this country, Illinois in particular. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you, Lee. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American stories, and for the hour, one of the great American stories. Seventy years ago, the world was convinced he was dead. There was good reason. A death certificate had been signed by FDR. There had been no news from the former Olympic athlete since his World War II bomber crushed into the Pacific while he was on a rescue mission. The story of how Louis Zamperini survived that ordeal and overcame it was chronicled in Laura Hillenbrand's remarkable book, Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. On this day in history in 1917, Louis Zamperini was born in upstate New York. Many of us know his story from Angelina Jolie's film, Unbroken. And we're going to fill in some gaps on that movie, Things She Left Out. And my goodness, she left out some big things. The film presented Louis's journey through the Olympics and the trials of the war, along with the wretched treatment of the POWs from the Japanese. However, part of the story was left unsaid, one of the most moving and important parts. Based on the biography again by Laura Hillenbrand. And by the way, read the book. If you've seen the movie, read the book. You're going to get so mad. You really are. Unbroken, though, is a true story of forgiveness. That's what it's really about in the end. That's what will move you beyond belief as you listen to this next hour. We're going to bring you that story in Louis's own words. He died recently, a few years back. But we love doing these stories where you hear from him. Just because he's not alive doesn't mean we can't hear from him, folks. And he shared these words with a Harvest Christian Fellowship back in 2011. Born into an Italian immigrant family, Louis faced bullying and torment 
But young Louis fought back without hesitation. The kids started teasing me to get me to swear in Italian. Two or three months and I started retaliating enough I thought I could whip these guys. And so I was always fighting, getting even. And even the girls in school, when they give me trouble, I'd, I'd take a clove of garlic and chew it and then blow my breath out of them in school. And uh, so my whole life became a life of, of, of getting even. And by the way, Italians face discrimination so many people have. And it impacted and affected Louis. As you can imagine, Louis found plenty of ways to get into trouble as a kid. However, Louis's loving brother Pete knew that he couldn't live the rest of his life that way and used running to right Louis's ways. Well, yeah, I formed a, a little gang and uh, we, in the movie theaters, uh, was a dime to get in the movies. So everybody went to the movies on Saturday night. And, and we knew who made the beer and the wine and the liquor. So uh, when they went to the movies, we'd get in their house and get the loot and hide it. <laughs> we had a cave out in the trees, and uh, we'd hide it there. And then the next day, we'd go to the beach and uh, lay on the beach and uh, drink beer or whatever. We had wine. But the lifeguards were like policemen then. And they came down and, uh, you know, reprimanded us. I worked at a dairy part-time, so I filled the milk bottle full of white paint, left it upside down at night, and then left it in the sun for three or four days. And then we poured our wine or our, our, our beer into the milk bottle, and, the, and of course the lifeguards thought we were drinking milk. Well, yeah, my brother knew I had no interest, only gang-related interest, and uh, so I'm a great believer in getting young people started in different things. So that when they're bored, they say, hey, let's go play tennis, or let's go do this. But I had none, so I just said, hey, let's go do this, and it was the wrong thing. And, uh, and, and so the police were, they got, it got so bad that when uh, something happened in town, they just parked in front of my house and wait for me to come home. <laughs> and, and like my brother said, he said, when the police car went south, I went north. And so, like a loving brother would, he just tries to channel his brother's energy into, again, this thing called running. And it turns out Louis was good at it, and he kept getting faster and faster. And he was crowned the Torrance Tornado in high school. He set a world interscholastic record for the mile and won a scholarship to USC. He decided to start running the 5,000-meter race and did well. So well that he was invited to the Olympic tryouts. The Olympic committee sent me an invitation to go to New York for the tryouts. But it's funny because in those days, the Depression... All these athletes are invited when they qualify, but how do you get to New York? Uh, there was no money. We had uh, some people hitchhiked. Uh, uh, a guy took a motorcycle from Seattle all the way there to compete. But uh, my dad worked for the Pacific Electric Red Cars, and uh, he was allowed one pass a year on the Southern Pacific Railway. So I got my round trip, and then I had nothing to wear, no suitcase. And so the merchants in town got together and gave me everything I needed. And they took a little offering around town so I'd have spending money to eat on the train. And then in New York, I had a room with another buddy. Uh, And we ran on the hottest day New York had for about 90 years. And boy, people were dropping like flies. My brother said, you're going to run against the world's record holder in a two-mile, John Lash. And I want you to get behind him and just keep your eye on the back of his head. Well, as a kid, a world record holder to me was, oh, it was just unbelievable. 
And I'm running behind him, and I had a chance to pass him the last lap, but I didn't. I just said, well, how do you pass a world champion? <laughs> and uh, I waited too late to the last 220, and now he's in the first lane, his buddy's in the second lane behind, and I had to run the third lane around a quarter of a, a half of the track, which put me about 12 yards further to run. And uh, by coming down the home stretch, we ran neck and neck to the tape, and you, you couldn't put a, uh, I don't think there was a half inch between us. So that qualified me, and I couldn't believe it. I'm on the team, and, and uh, now they took care of me. They put me in a hotel, gave me clothes, paid for everything once you're on the team. And I'll never forget, because I, I just found the card I, I mailed to my mother. We're in this hotel, and I wrote to her and said that, you won't believe it, Mom, but they got a radio in every room. They got a radio in every room. When we come back, the life of Louis Zamperini, born on this day in history in 1917. Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken, spectacular. Angelina Jolie's Unbroken. Well, you're not going to like what we're about to say about that movie because of the things they left out. They left out the most important stuff. When we come back, the rest of the story, Louis Zamperini's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our hour-long celebration of the life of Louis Zamperini, born on this day in history in 1917. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, arts, philosophy, history, sports, religion. It's all there. Send your kid there. They're going to get a bang-up education as good as I've ever seen in the country. I happen to teach there a couple of weeks out of the year. I'm a bit biased. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their terrific online courses. So Louis Zamperini's qualified for the Olympics. He's off in 1936 to the Olympics in Berlin. This is Hitler's big moment, by the way. He gets to show off to the world the Aryan superiority. And here are these Italian kids. And by the way, Jesse Owens, an African-American, is racing. Big stakes, folks. Big stakes. But Louis didn't do as well as he'd hoped due to some unexpected weight gain somewhere between 12 and 14 pounds. Now, my big problem was with not having been away from home. The only time I ate out, I had a, a, a I think it was a tuna fish sandwich with olive on it. And that was the only time I ever ate out. I was in a drugstore. Uh, during the Depression, we had to forage for food. We had to go out and pick wild radishes, wild tomatoes, and uh, had to shoot uh, uh, cottontail rabbits for rabbit cacciatore. And uh, <laughs> when we ran out of money again, my mother said, go to the, go to the beach room and bring me home four or five abalones. Well, that was poor man's food. Anyway, so I get aboard the ship, and I just, when they start bringing the food on a boat, 
I couldn't believe it. Not one sweet roll, but five different kinds. My eyes just popped out of my head, <laughs> and I, I went for the gold, but it was food. And being overweight, I couldn't keep up the pace. <laughs> but uh, so the last lap, they, all the great runners were up front. There were seven of them, and then there was a 50-yard gap between them and us. And I was really tired. And as the last lap, my brother said, "Well, everybody's tired." And he gave me a formula. He said, isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? So I spent the whole last lap under the one minute, 56 seconds, and the grandstand people jumped up, you know, they, it was quite a sight, I guess. And uh, I, so, but I came in eighth. But uh, as a result of that, I got an invitation from an officer to see Hitler. And I said, well, I, I didn't win a gold. He said, well, no, he just wants to see you. So I went over there and all he said was, the boy with the fast finish. The boy with the fast finish. I mean, imagine he met Adolf Hitler. At this point, Olympic athlete Louis Zamperini still had a lot of troublemaking left in him. So he decided to collect some mementos of his trip overseas. Another thing I enjoyed about the Olympians, uh, they all collect souvenirs to bring home. And uh, I had a lot of childhood training about taking things home. <laughs> So I started my collection on the boat. And then uh, in Germany, uh, after I competed, about two days later, I went to uh, Berlin with a buddy. And they had what they called beer automats, where you put in 20 pfennigs and you get beer, but not a cup like this. It's a liter. And that's the smallest beer they had. And uh, we had two beers, and I... um, got a little frisky, and uh, we walked down the street, and I saw a limousine pull up in front of the chancellery, and Hitler got out, and I think it was General Goring, no, not Goring, it was uh, Fritz, and uh, they went inside, in the meantime, the guards on the front walk, they meet at the gate, turn about, walk to the corner, so I timed them, and I knew I had plenty of time to get across the street and tear this flag down. But uh, when I got to the flag, it was about a foot higher than I had anticipated, and I couldn't reach it. So the guards started to scream in German, and uh, I, I, I just panicked. I jumped as high as I could and just barely clutched it, ripped it from the, from the uh, pole, and I did what I do best. I started to run. Well, the guards started screaming at me as they ran toward me, and I just started to run across the street, and I heard a shot. So one of the guards shot in the air, and then they, I stopped. They came up, and they handled me rather roughly at first until they saw the Olympic insignia and the American flag, and then they were more gentle. And then uh, the guard went in, in the uh, chancellery, talked to, I think he talked to General von Fritz. I, I remember that name when he came out, and then he said... Uh, but why did you tear down the swastika? Now, we had two Jewish boys aboard the Olympians. They were in the relay. And they thought I was probably one of them, and I tore the flag down for racial reasons. But I said, no, no, I, I, I just wanted to take the flag home to America to always remind me of the wonderful time I had in your country. 5,000-meter race in less than 70 seconds was impressive. Louis ran his in just 56 He knew that he had what it took to win and was readying himself for the next Olympics. But then they were canceled. The world was at war, and Louis joined the Army Air Corps. 
now known as the Air Force, and earned a commission as a second lieutenant as a bombardier. In 1943, Louis and his B-24 crew were on a search and rescue mission over the Pacific when the plane's engines caved, and the plane and crew crashed into the water some 850 miles south of Oahu, Hawaii. Well, I, you know, kids ask me, do you ever think about dying? That's a big question the kids ask. And uh, no, I never thought about dying. We just thought about living. And uh, we focused on that. And I had plenty of survival training to make it work. My problem was I was, uh, the pilot and the, and the uh, tail gunner were blown free of the wreckage. Uh, but I was trapped in the waste section. Why? Because the tripod that holds the machine gun up is in front of me, and I hold the life raft in my, in my body. And then just before we hit, I ducked down low, and so I ended up under the tripod with the raft below me, and I was severely and painfully wedged into that tripod, so there's no way I could move. And to make matters worse, the tail snapped off, and the wires are springy wires. They coil up. The wires coiled around me. I'm already trapped hopelessly. And I'm completely entangled in wires, and I thought, well, this is it. I knew I was dead. And uh, now I, I have to laugh when people say, I, I thought I was going to die, and my whole life went before my eyes. You don't have time for your life to pass before your eyes. <laughs> you only have time to say, God, help me. <laughs> and that's what I said in my mind and heart. God, help me. I'm dead anyway. So I, my last request... And, uh, and uh, then I, uh, I went down at least 20 feet when my ears popped. Then I was down probably 100, 150 feet when my forehead uh, had a severe pain from the pressure. And then I lost consciousness. But just before I did, I said in my heart, God help me. And then I'm conscious again. And this is strange because the first second that I became conscious, I thought, this is the afterlife. <laughs> and... It, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like the Bible said. <laughs> it sure wasn't. Floating out there in the middle of nowhere were Louie and two crewmates from the original crew of 11. Understandably, one of the three men who had survived, he began to panic. But uh, Within 30 minutes, the tail gunner panicked and started screaming. And uh, he lost control completely. We're going to die. We're all going to die. And I said, Mac, nobody's going to die. Settle down. He kept screaming, and of course that wasn't good for the pilot who lost a lot of blood. And so I tried to use, uh, well, I took psychology in college, so I tried that. Uh, and that didn't work, so then I threatened to report him. I said, we're going to be picked up tomorrow, today, and I'm making a report to the commander. And that didn't work, so I just turned my back on him and came around with his knuckles, and I cracked him across the face. <laughs> Knocked him on his fanny, and uh, he was completely content. <laughs> completely content. And by the way, listen to the man. Listen to the spirit. And by the way, it's going to get worse, this story, before it gets better. We promise you it's going to get a lot worse. When we come back, my goodness, what Louis Zamperini endures, this is just the beginning. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. And again, you're hearing Louis Zamperini's story from Louis Zamperini himself. He was born on this day in history in 1917. His life chronicled in this spectacular book by Laura Hillenbrand. And Laura Hillenbrand wrote not just about Louis, but another wounded 
another wounded hero, Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit was her first book. And if you remember that book, it was about wounded and broken people. The horse was broken, the trainer was broken, the owner was broken, and the jockey was broken. What a story. And this is a broken man, and he had good reason to be broken. What unbroke Louis? Well, you'll hear that too. This is Our American Stories, the life of Louis Zamperini, after these messages. American stories, and we continue with the life story of Louis Zamperini, born on this day in history in 1917. As you might imagine, surviving on the open sea was no easy thing. They got by on rainwater and small fish and birds while dealing with shark attacks, storms, and Japanese machine guns. After 47 days, only Russell Allen Phillips and Louis survived. They drifted on the land, and they thought, I guess, that that was good news. But it ended up even in being even worse news. Because they drifted right into the hands of the Japanese, who threw the two of them into a prison camp. They were both half the weight that they were when they boarded that plane. Laura Heldenbrand's book describes Louis' first night at the prison camp. Quote, Louis looked down at his body, legs that had sprung through a four-minute, 12-second mile over bright sand on that last morning he spent in Hawaii, were now useless. The vibrant, generous body that he had trained with such vigilance had shrunk until only bones remained, draped in yellow skin, crawling with parasites. All I see, he thought, is a dead body breathing. Louis dissolved into hard, racking weeping. He muffled his sobs so the guard wouldn't hear him. He thought the days on the raft and the weight loss were terrible, but soon in the prison camp, true hell began. The situation for the next 43 days on land was far worse than being on the life raft. So I, I used to pray there, God, get me out on that raft. I want to die out there where it's clean and beautiful sky. But here we were in this filth, uh, constant permanent diarrhea, and then uh, oh, all kinds of things happened. They injected us, and submarines launched there, and at 80 men would come ashore and, and uh, you know, tease us and, and spit on us and throw rotten at us. And, but um, I'd say the most disappointing thing was when we went before the interrogation panel, uh, six naval officers in white uniforms with gold braid, medals, all that, and uh, before the interrogation started, one of the officers said, uh, Mr. Zamperini, or Lieutenant Zamperini, when you were entering USC in 1936, I was graduating. 
And this guy said he was a Trojan, and, th- and that was hard for me to believe. Uh, he was the most obnoxious of the six. I just couldn't figure it out. I finally had to come to the conclusion that he was a, a third-year transfer from UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> and you're from Southern California. That'll make you laugh. Uh, UCLA and USC have quite a rivalry. It's like Alabama and Auburn's uh, Army and Navy, so on and so forth. At this point, Louis had only been kept alive due to his celebrity as an Olympian. The Japanese had plans for him. Yeah, well, it all started when I was put into Ofuna. That's a secret camp. And it's for high-profile prisoners, people that, like Pappy Boynton was shot down Friday. He's there Saturday. He's got current information. And now the head interrogator there went to SC with me. And uh, I asked him, I, I said, I'm not a high-profile prisoner. 47 days on a raft, 43 days in a, in a cell, a month getting to, to, to Yokohama. And he wouldn't tell me anything. But after a year and a month, I'm transferred to headquarters, Omori, and uh, I found out the reason why. It takes a year and a month to be declared dead. And they were waiting for me to be declared dead so they could condemn America. And they, and the first propaganda they had on the radio, and I think it's in the book. Uh, and then the, the purpose was, because on Kwajalein, we were, our day of execution was set. But another officer came there and said, it would better serve Japan's purpose to send Louis on to Tokyo to make propaganda broadcast. So that saved our lives. But when they... Uh, I made this broadcast to my parents. That was just a ruse, the first step. And uh, the second time I went to the radio, they provided me with the script that they wrote, and it was propaganda. And it was subtle, but then that's, that's the way they get you. You say, well, it's not that bad. And the next time, it's a little stronger, and I refused to read it. And that had consequences. That really made the Japanese mad. After Louis refused to read Japanese propaganda aimed at demoralizing Americans, his hell got even worse. Louis was moved around from various POW camps, all of them horrible, but the worst experience of all was due to one man, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, also known as the Bird. The Bird was mean enough as he was, but I think they gave him orders to make my life miserable. So I would accept a better life of a cafeteria food in Radio Tokyo in a hotel room. I met uh, two Australians and an American that were doing that. And when I shook their hands, they couldn't look in my eyes. And I think they were sending me a message. There's no way I could do it. I mean, I'd have to live with that the rest of my life. And so I was sent to a slave labor camp. And I thought, thank God I'm getting away from Mr. Shiro Watanabe, the bird. But then he was transferred to another camp. There's 90 camps in Japan proper. Well, he's at one of those camps. Then two weeks later, I'm transferred to another camp. I'm told to stand at attention and face the guard shack, and I did. And the door opens and out steps Watanabe. And I'm on my knees buckled, and I thought, that's useless, useless. And um, I start all over again. And so he worked me over right, right to the end. But he knew the war was over two days before we did. And so he's, he, the bird flew the coop, yeah. <laughs> and the bird, well... He beat Louis and the men relentlessly day after day. At one point, he made Louis hold a beam above his head as punishment 
for going to the doctor without permission. Louis held that beam for 37 minutes, much longer than his weak, dysentery-racked body should have been able to. The bird was furious as he realized that Louis had transformed these tortures into opportunities to show defiance. The bird ran at Louis and punched him in the stomach, causing the beam to fall on his head. But the bird wasn't just picking on Louis. After some enlisted men stole fish because they were starving, the bird came up with a cruel punishment. But it wasn't just cruel. It was an effort to strain the bond between the men themselves. The bird called out the thieves and officers and ordered the enlisted men to punch them for punishment and humiliation. So he was asking Americans to beat up their fellow Americans. Now a passage from the book Unbroken. Quote, The enlisted men had no choice. At first, some hit softly, but they were immediately clubbed by the guards, then set upon by the bird. For the first few punches, Louis stayed upright. Soon his legs wavered and collapsed. He pulled himself up, but fell again with the next punch, and the next. Eventually, he blacked out. When he woke, the bird forced the men to resume punching him, barking, next, next, next. In Louis's whirling mind, the voice began to sound like the tramping of feet. The sun sank. For two hours, the beating went on. The victims had to be carried to the barracks. Louis's face was so swollen that for several days he could barely open his mouth. By Wade's estimation, each man had been punched in the face some 220 times. In his efforts to humiliate the officers and sow division among the men, the bird was satisfied. But Louis later said that the bird failed. The Americans were satisfied too. Quote, preferring to be hit by our own men than by anyone Japanese. And when we come back, the rest of the story... Louis returns home a broken man. What unbreaks him? The rest of the story, our final segment in the hour, the celebration of the life of Louis Zamperini, born on this day in history in 1917. continue with the life of Louis Zamperini, our final segment, born on this day in history in 1917. With the end of the war came the end of Louis's time as a prisoner of war. Louis came home with a lot of scars, visible and invisible. Many POWs came home, as Hildenbrand describes, quote, torn down men. The struggle of post-war life was to restore their dignity and find a way to see the world as something other than menacing darkness, she wrote. Louis, back in America, met Cynthia Applewhite in March of 1946, and after two weeks convinced her to marry him. They were married in May of 46. Cynthia soon began to see the effects that that war had on her husband, especially the marks left by the bird. But the nightmares started in prison, because every day when he would punish me, I'd clench my fist, and he knew I wanted to hit him, 
And he said, if I draw my sword, I must use it. So I had nightmares there all the way home. And I, there was never a night I didn't dream about getting this guy. And uh, so, but when I woke up in a cold sweat uh, with my hand around my wife's throat, that really scared me. And of course, it scared her. <laughs> and, uh, and then she, we were, a young couple in the apartment came to uh, our apartment and knocked on the door and started telling us about a young evangelist coming to L.A., and he started to quote scripture, and boy, that, that hit me. I, I said, hey, I'm out of here. And my, my wife listens. And when Billy came, they talked her into going down with them. And she, in the meantime, she'd already filed for a divorce. And then, uh, but when she came home and tried to get me to go down, I fought her. Uh, but then she said something that softened me up. She said, because of my conversion, I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that really softened me up a bit, and so... She was able to persuade me to go down here, Billy. But then again, he was quoting scripture, and that really hit me between the eyes. And I said, I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a sinner. I know I am. And so I got mad, pulled her on home. Uh, but uh, the next day, she's all over me again. And, and I said, okay, okay, I'll go back on one condition. When he says, every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out. And so back again we went, and Billy's finishing the sermon and I said, let's go. And then he said something like, um, when people come to the end of their rope and they have nowhere else to turn, they turn to God. And I thought, yeah, that's what I did. And I, on the raft in prison camp, all the prisoners were praying about the same prayer, get me home alive to my family and I'll seek you and serve you. Well, he got me home alive and I didn't keep my promise and that really hit me between the eyes. So instead of leaving the tent, I went back to the prayer room and made a confession of my faith in Christ. And that Billy, by the way, was Billy Graham. And after that tent meeting in Los Angeles, Louis began to see religion in a much clearer light. And his life began to change. When it happened, I wouldn't have received Christ as my Savior. I knew while I was still on my knees that I was a different person. And I didn't know what happened. And then later, of course, as I began to study the Scriptures, I realized that uh, when I invited Christ into my life, uh, therefore, if any man... Being Christ, he's a new person. That was the answer. But at that time, I didn't know it. I just knew something phenomenal happened. And I had no, not the slightest hate for the bird anymore. I loved everybody. And uh, so the first miracle was uh, uh, not having the nightmares. Or I should say my conversion, not having nightmares. And then the third miracle was uh, the Bible. I could never understand it. In the Pacific, they gave us olive drab Bibles and Nobody could understand it, so we just threw it in our footlocker. So I took uh, the, my, my olive drab New Testament, I walked up into the Hollywood Park, and I started to read it, and now it made sense. And uh, when I got to the, uh, the, uh, the crucifixion on the cross and uh, the treatment that uh, God the Son went through, the, and the torture and the humiliation, uh, I started to cry. I never cried in my life. But uh, nobody could make me cry as a kid. I was just defiant. But this did it. If it hadn't been for the war or Watanabe and the post-traumatic stress, that's what drove me to Christ. When I got on my knees and accepted Christ, what a relief to know that I'd passed from one life into another. God had used Billy Graham to bring the gospel to Louis Zamperini in 1946. And about 10 years later, Billy had Louis share what God had done in his life at one of his meetings. 
Maybe many of you remember the headlines in 1936, some of you older people do, because Louis Zamberini was representing the United States in the World Olympics in Berlin. He was the great Olympic miler, and he was the man that climbed up the rice stock and pulled Hitler's flag right down from the top. And the whole world gasped, and it became an international incident. During the war, Louis Zamberini was an American war hero. He was 47 days on a life raft floating around in the Pacific. And he began to drink when he came home, and he was confused and frustrated and mixed up in his life. And he too wandered into that tent on Washington and Hill in Los Angeles and found Christ as his savior. And tonight, he is the director of the Victory Boys Camp for Juvenile Delinquents in Los Angeles, giving his full life now to try to rehabilitate juvenile delinquents and lead them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lewis, we're delighted to have you with us tonight. Thank you, Billy. It was after the war and with about $10,000 in back pay from two and a half years in prison camp and also uh, collecting my life insurance for being dead, <laughs> I became uh, extremely uh, selfish, cynical, and greedy until the uh, wind was finally let out of my sails. I lost everything that I possessed outside of my wife and little girl. And it was then that my wife was able to persuade me into going down to that meeting at Washington and Hill Street in Los Angeles where I heard the gospel from Billy Graham's lips. And there as I sat in the meeting, I heard Billy Graham when he stated that God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ could forgive me for my sins and that if I put my trust in him, I could have eternal life. And so I went forward in that meeting, asked God to forgive me for not having kept many promises I made on the raft. I acknowledged to God that I was a sinner. I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me. And of course he did. Since then, I have had an unquenchable joy of working with these uh, wayward boys and uh, also preaching to them the same gospel that I heard nine years ago. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lewis. And that's the part that's left out of Angelina Jolie's movie, Unbroken. In fact, the title of her movie should have been Broken, because what unbroke Louis was Jesus Christ. In one of his last interviews with Hugh Hewitt, he said two significant things happened in his life. One, I crashed into an ocean. Two, I crashed into Jesus Christ. And Angelina Jolie left out that second half. Laura Hildenbrand did not. Why Angelina Jolie did that, we will never know. After his conversion, Louis tried to get in contact with the bird to let him know that he had forgiven him. The bird, sadist that he is, refused. Louis wrote a letter. To Mrs. Cheryl Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwanted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and the suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope 
to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. And by the way, Harry Carey is ritual suicide. The other Japanese war criminals thought the bird might have done that, but he didn't. In fact, CBS tracked him down prior to the 1998 Winter Olympics. The bird was unrepentant and refused to see Louis Zamperini. In 1998... Zamperini finally got to participate in the Olympics in Japan. That's what had brought him there. He carried the torch through the town where he had been a POW 50-plus years before as adoring crowds lined the streets. CBS reporter Jim Nass asked him about that day and the graciousness of the Japanese people who smothered with flowers a POW statue near the place where he and so many GIs had been tortured. Quote, Their graciousness and compassion and love was unbelievable, he told Nance. It was more than compensated for my past years in Japan more than 50 years ago. Louis Zamperini could have chosen a life of self-pity and self-hate. He could have chosen to remain a victim. Who would have blamed him? But instead he chose life, and it was his faith that gave him his love for life. He gave up skateboarding at 81. At 91... He reluctantly gave up skiing. To the end, Louis Zamperini was teaching us how not only to survive, but how to live. This is Lee Habib, the life of Louis Zamperini, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, born on this day in history in 1917.